service. We're chill here. I had Libby read. Uh, she is a fan of the message translation. She always has that at Bible study. So I had to read that. Sometimes I think it's good for us to get a different uh, interpretation of the text. And tonight uh, we have a, a interesting text. Um, I was reminded when I was in high school, I ran cross country. And my freshman year, we, we were broken up into four tiers. We had tier one, which is like varsity, fast, the elite runners. Tier two, which was you know, on the cusp of being a varsity runner. Team three and team four were the slower runners. And my freshman year was actually my fastest year. I made tier two. Uh, but a couple buddies of mine, we, we didn't really feel very motivated to run. And so we created a subgroup called Group 2.9. And our goal was to do as least amount of work as possible. And so we would, unfortunately, take shortcuts in practice. If coach said, go out and run 10 miles, we'd go play ultimate frisbee. Um, and there was one particular course, it was a 10K race, and I remember we found a way to cut through the woods and hide under this bridge so that as soon as group one would pass, we could hear their feet on the bridge, we would just kind of sneak out and run right behind them like we were running the whole time. And uh, I remember one day, we're hiding under the bridge, I'm so excited to pull off this uh, crazy shortcut, and we hear the feet on the bridge go past us, and we start to sneak up. And standing on the bridge with his arm crossed is assistant coach, Mr. Pfeiffer. Mr. Pfeiffer was not a nice man. Mr. Pfeiffer hated 2.9. And uh, I remember we had to go back and run 800s until I think all of us were throwing up by the end. It was not fun. And I learned a lesson that day, is that sometimes doing the hard things, like actually running the 10K, is better for you in the long term. When I saw and read the text for tonight, I'll be honest, I was like, I really don't want to preach on this. Um, sometimes when you're preaching through the entirety of Scripture, you get to parts that are difficult. And sure enough, in Revelation, we have another sermon that sort of centers around death as well as God's wrath, which are not fun subjects. Um, but I think it's good for us. I think it's good for us to teach the hard things. It's good for us to engage with them. I think it helps us grow in our understanding of Scripture. And so we're going to do that tonight, and hopefully... We had a, a snow day last Thursday, but if you missed Mike on Sunday, my brother preached, I think, one of his best sermons ever. Go check it out. It's on our website on the Four Horses of the Apocalypse. Uh, that's where we were last week, and so we're on seal five and six. Um, there are seven seals, and we'll cover the seventh next week. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we're in the book of Revelation. We're working our way through it. And uh, just a little reminder, what's happening in this narrative is uh, Jesus reveals himself to John, who's on the island of Patmos. Um, and this, this letter is written, this book is written uh, during um, a time of great persecution in the church. And so Jesus reveals himself to John, gives him a vision. Um, and what it's really important for us to do is when we uh, read the Bible, we want to ask, what did this mean, not just to us, but what does it mean to the people in the first century? Because that's going to give us a clue to what John is trying to say. How would they have read this? What comfort or instruction might they have been looking for? And if you remember the first three chapters were the seven letters to the seven churches. And chapter four is where we sort of begin what we would call the apocalyptic style of literature. Which means uh, there's going to be a lot of visions and symbols and numbers. And it, it can be a little bit confusing and overwhelming to try to understand it. The big thing for us to understand is that apocalyptic literature was written uh, in a time of immense suffering. 
And it was to give the people of God encouragement to persevere even in the midst of death. And to show them that in the end, though they may not see it in their lifetime, God is going to win and everything uh, about their hope that has been promised will be fulfilled. And another piece that I think is really helpful for us is when we look at the church, the church has been interpreting the book of Revelation for 2,000 years. And there are multiple ways that one can try and attempt to interpret it. There are many different interpretations. And I know it'd be easier, you probably want me just to tell you what it means, but I don't think that's helpful. Because for one, I don't know what it means. I can do my best to interpret it. Um, But I think a better way, and what I want to do a little bit on the front end tonight, is sort of give you the four main ways of interpreting Revelation. And if that's boring, I'm sorry, but I think it's going to be really helpful for us moving forward. So, to get us started, make sure this is working. Isaac, I don't know if my thing's working. Will you do the slides for me? Thanks, dude. Um, The first view that we see in, uh, we've sort of seen throughout history, is the the view of uh, historicism. Uh Uh-oh. There we go. Okay, so I've got this working definition up here. Historicism is when the historist interprets the book of Revelation. They look at the past and draw parallels between John's vision and significant uh, historical events. Okay, so essentially what this is, is it's the view to sort of interpret the end times in the way uh, of covering all of human history. So from the moment uh, time began, tracing human history, from the moment that uh, Jesus died and rose again, Every event is sort of interpreted through this lens. Um, The difficulty about this is that it is so subjective, right? You may take, for example, the the metaphor of the locust, and you may say, well, maybe the the, the locust stands for in the 1500s when the Reformation happened, right? You can try to tie these to very specific events, and there's a lot of people who think they've predicted that the Bible shows us every single event, including presidents who are elected in the United States of America, which is, you know, really interesting. It's a big world, but it's all tied to very specific things, and this one is probably um, the least uh, viewed uh, uh, interpretation tool, the historist. Um, Another example would be what did I remind my second one? Yes, preterism. Okay, so if you're a preterist, this is an approach to Revelation that understands that most of the book was fulfilled in the decades immediately following the establishment of the church. This view is essentially that everything we're going to read about, so all of this, the apocalypse, and the, you're gonna, we're going to read today about stars falling and all kinds of this stuff, all of this was actually referring to what Jesus predicted would happen in the fall of Jerusalem. Okay, so this is a view that Revelation is not about the future. It's not about what's going to happen way down the road. It's about what's happening in their midst. Jesus predicted that in his generation, Jerusalem would have been destroyed. So a lot of the things that we read, they would, the person who would have this view would read as symbolic. Now the third view, and this is probably the most popular view, or one of the most popular views, would be the futurist view. Futurism is the view that interprets the book of Revelation as literally and chronologically as possible. This view leaves little room for symbolism. Now, that's sort of describing um, like a a premillennial dispensationalism that's very, very specific, right? There's also sort of a historical premillennialism, which is a little bit less specific. I don't need to get in the weeds here. But essentially what you need to understand is that everything past the letters, okay? So we get to Revelation 4. 
everything from 4 to 19, the futurist would say is going to happen in something called the tribulation. The tribulation is a, a time in the future, it's a seven-year period, when all of these things will happen. And depending on where you, set, where you land on this side of the aisle, either you believe that Christians will go to heaven before the tribulation, that would be pre-mill, or they will endure the suffering, and then after the tribulation, they will be raised to heaven. Those who hold <clears throat> this view essentially believe, most people who hold to a premillennial view believe that they will be um, in heaven watching as this all takes place. This was a view that was popularized by a man named C.I. Schofield in the early 1900s. Um, there were Bible prophecy conferences. You're probably familiar with the Left Behind book series that sort of made this sort of a cultural phenomenon and talking about rapture and different things like that. Um, let me say this before I get to the next one. In all three views that I've shared with you this, so far, there have been godly men in history who've held these views and written at length about them. Um, the, histor the historical view, uh, Spurgeon held that view. You can go back and look at uh, many people who held uh, Preter's views. One of my favorite New Testament scholars, N.T. Wright, holds that view. Uh, there, there are many people who hold these different views, including the Futurist view, which is a very popular one. And so, I'm saying that to you to say, I'm not up here saying this is the, necessarily the right view, but this last view is the one that I tend to lean towards, and that is the view of the idealist. Now, the idealist approach uh, affirms revelation is a symbolic portrayal of the conflict between good and evil. I'll read this definition. This view sees it as an allegorical representation of the types of things or events believers may expect in the time between the inauguration of Christ's kingdom and its consummation. Another uh, word would be the amillennial view. And so this view doesn't necessarily believe that the millennium or the, the, the tribulation, the seven years, is coming in the future, but believes that from the moment Christ rose, we have been living in the millennium. Right? This is an ongoing thing that we are a part of. And so many of the symbolism and all these things, you'll notice there are sets of seven that repeat over and over again. That's because we are, being, we are all experiencing these things all throughout history. And so within this vein, um, understanding these things, I, I think it's important to understand the history of the amillennial view. The amillennial view is not new. Um, it, it was the dominant view of the church uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Roman Catholic Church, and many Protestants to this day, many of the reformers, including Calvin and Luther, held this understanding. Um, and so this has been a view that is not new. I think, I think sometimes there's a misconception there. Um, it's been a view that's been around for a while. And, and the way I like to sort of break it down is the amillennial view understands that the kingdom of God proclaimed by Jesus and his apostles is synonymous with the millennium kingdom we read about in Revelation 24. Now, that was a lot. I hope you're with me still. There are different ways this book has been interpreted throughout history and time, and in humility, I'll admit, I could be dead wrong. But I lean towards this perspective, so tonight, it actually is going to be helpful for you to know that because I'm going to be interpreting these passages with that perspective. If I came from a futurist perspective, I'd have a very different interpretation. And so I say that to see if that's something that's interested, interesting to you, um, you can check that out. Ben, uh, Pastor Ben's going to be preaching on Sunday. You should check it out because he actually has a preterist view 
Um, but he's got a soft side for the email, so, you know, you get a little bit of both. So, here we go. In the book of Revelation, we have three sets of seven that we're going to see in these coming passages. All right, this seven is a number for completion. Um, there are three sets of seven judgments. The first set is the seven seals. That's what we started last week. If you heard Mike, he talked about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Imagine a scroll with a wax seal. I'm not talking about a sea lion, okay? A seal on a scroll, right? There are seven seals. Um, Jesus has a scroll in this vision, and he's pulling off the seals as he's revealing each one of these. Eventually, we're going to see seven trumpets, okay? So in coming weeks, we'll be talking about the seven trumpets. These are another set of judgments. And then following that, we have a set of seven bowls. And there will be seven judgments that go with the bowls. Now, if you were interpreting these things as a futurist, one of the things you would do is you would be interpreting it chronologically. So first, there's going to be seven judgments um, through the seals, and then there will be seven judgments through the trumpets, and then finally the seven judgments of the bulls. It's a lot of judgments. Um, that's, the, that's one of the interesting dynamics of how we interpret this book. Now, it's possible that that's how we should interpret it, but it's also possible that, like a movie, you, you kind of circle around and go back and relook at things. So, for example, in Revelation 10, the Lord uh, tells John, you must prophesy again about, against nations. And so it, it makes sense that the way he's interpreting this and the way he's, he's receiving it um, is not a chronological thing, like this happens and this happens, but rather the seven is cycling these series of events, and the next seven is retelling it through a new lens. Again, this is a common motif you see among apocalyptic literature, this sort of repetition and use of numbers. Now, we, we are at the fifth and the sixth seal. Let's look at verse 9. I'm reading from the NIV here. Verse 9, if you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. This is chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. So we have a vision here of those who have been slain. It's the same word that's used when talked about earlier passages, the lamb that was slain. And what's being referred to here is those who have died for their faith. Now, if you remember, um, they're living in a time when the emperor, Domitian, was killing Christians, and not just killing them, but doing it in quite brutal ways. And so people were being uh, uh, hanged for their faith. They were being um, burnt alive for their faith. Lots of horrific things were happening. And so you can imagine being a Christian in that time, living with a sense of collective fear. If you were reading this from the futurist perspective, you may read this, you would read this as something that was going to happen to people in the tribulation. So in that seven-year period, this would be happening, those who were martyred would be happening then. Now, like I said, there's nothing wrong with that view. However, I think it's possible that this is not just limited to a small group of people in the future at a certain specific time who have been martyred. In fact, you can go all the way back to the beginning of time. Let's go back to one of the first stories, Cain and Abel, right? Abel is essentially martyred for his sake. He's killed by his brother. He's murdered by his jealous brother, Cain, and um, people have been killed for their faith, uh, you know, all throughout the Bible. We see many, many examples of this. Um, and what happens often is a pattern. When they sin, when they commit, uh, someone commits murder, what do they do? What does Cain do? He hides from God, right? He runs away. 
And then ultimately continuing to hurt people who are following God. We have this wicked person in Cain. And God said, the blood of your brother is crying out to the earth. But what does God do? He doesn't kill Cain in the moment, right? He sets him up for a life, difficult life the rest of his life. But Cain's judgment is not coming in this life. And that's an important thing to remember. God's judgment for Cain is coming. And so all throughout history, we can look at examples of people who have been martyred for their faith, including those in John's time and including those who are killed today, which is hard for us to imagine. We live in the United States of America. We don't see people being persecuted for their faith in this manner. This is not uh, our reality. And so I think it's hard for us sometimes to really uh, get that and understand that. But I, I, my brother is a, is a missionary. He's working to go over to Taiwan, and he, he spent time speaking to people in certain countries in Asia that have dealt with tremendous suffering and persecution. I've heard crazy stories about what's been going on over there. Um, we've heard stories from some of our missionaries here at Eastminster about living in countries where it is so difficult uh, to live in light of faith not being something they can practice. Um, in fact, there's a magazine you can go to, it's called The Voice of the Martyrs. If you go online, go to the voice, just Google The Voice of the Martyrs. And it's a free magazine that tells stories of people uh, who are living in places where they may be suffering and being persecuted for their faith. Um, I was reading a story. This was a, a happened before the pandemic and everything went down, but he was a, a Bible smuggler, right? Which is a weird way to be a missionary, but that's what this person did. He would go from North Korea into China grab Bibles and smuggle them back to North Korea, right? And when he was being interviewed for this story they did on him, uh, one of the things he said was, he's like, look, I know that eventually I'm going to die. I'm going to get caught, and they're probably going to either kill me or have me rot in prison. And yet, he's like, I'm willing to risk my life for the mission God has given me. I was chatting with um, Pastor Stan earlier this week, and he had mentioned that at Grand Assembly, which is just when all the Presbyterian churches get together, have a big party, um, they were hearing from uh, one of our pastors, Andrew Brunson, perhaps you've heard, he was on the news, uh, he ended up going to prison in Turkey, and was held there for many years, and uh, when he was being interviewed, he said, one of the things he said at the, at the General Assembly, he said, one of the things I think the Lord said to me was that there will be a time when persecution comes to America. And he said, one thing I know for sure is that America is not ready for that. Um, now, when we say persecution, I want to be clear. I'm, I'm not talking about, um, you know, not removing under God from the Pledge of Allegiance or, um, you know, the fact that the moral majority has shifted from the right to the left. I'm not, I'm not talking about those types of things. I'm talking about literal, you cannot practice your faith for fear of being ostracized from a community or possibly being killed. And yet, um, I, knew, I do know this. I think that what he said is true. I do think America is certainly not ready for something like that. We are happy and comfortable, and we are able to live in a way where we can come together and worship without fear, and that's a beautiful thing. But it's not something we should take for granted, because one thing is true. I don't know when. It may be in our generation. It may not be in our generation. But there will come a time where probably uh, even our country may face that kind of persecution. Now, 
what I do believe, because I don't know that many of us will experience this in our lifetime, I think one of the things for us is to be mindful of those in other places that do experience that. But I think it's good for all of us to really wrestle with our faith and wrestle with whether or not our, our, our faith in God is simply a cultural identity, something that we identify with the community, or whether it's a faith that we are willing to die for. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever wrestled with that? You know, Paul says in Philippians 1, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a profound word from the Apostle Paul. Let's go back to verse 9. Um, so they're asking here, they're asking how long, right? How long do we wait? So once, once someone is martyred for their faith, how long do we have to wait until vengeance is taken on the people who unjustly killed us? That's a human cry. That is a cry for justice. And then we see this altar, okay? And this is a really weird, it's a vision, so it's, it's supposed to be weird, but it's a, it's a weird thing. There's this altar. If you go back, there's an altar of incense on the Day of Atonement. They would take blood into the Holy of Holies, and they would pour the, the blood of the bull uh, at the altar. And what, what's being said here is asking, how long until you pour out the blood of our enemies? Like, that's a, that's a very intense picture. And what they are doing in this moment, what the martyrs are doing, is they are appealing to a just and holy God. And what's difficult about this, and what's difficult when we wrestle with this idea of God's wrath is on one hand, you have Jesus who's telling us to love our enemies, to pray for our enemies. And on the other hand, you have uh, passages like this where we see God is going to one day avenge our enemies. And there's this interesting tension of God's divine love and God's divine justice. We see in chapter 16, the angel says, Righteous are you, O God. You have judged these things. They've poured out the blood of the saints, and you've given them blood to drink. It's a difficult passage on time we're taking communion. But that's, that's the message and, and sort of the idea that's being shown here. Okay, so we hold in tension God's justice and his mercy. In verse 11, it says they are given white robes. And John is giving us this vision to remind us that the early Christians, to the church in the Middle Ages, to now in the present, and to the future, that people will die for Christ. It's going to happen throughout history. And oftentimes, I think when we speak about it, we, it's hard for us to connect with it because it's not right in front of us. So I want to share a story. It's a difficult story, but I think it's a, a, a powerful one at the same time. This is about uh, uh, a man named Sharun Masih. Uh, he was 16 years old, and I say was because he passed away on August 27, 2017. It was only his fourth day at school. He was savagely beaten to death at the school by his classmates. Um, one of the things about his life is that he, he kind of beat all the odds. He grew up in a, in a poor, poor uh, neighborhood, and, and as part of the caste system, uh, he wasn't even supposed to go to school. Kids who grew up in poor neighborhoods like him Basically, they could get a job and, and work, but they, could, they really couldn't go on to get further education. But he was so smart, he beat all the odds, um, that one of his teachers, as a Christian teacher, was so impressed by him that he challenged him to get him into school because this kid could thrive. So his father saved up some money. He was a laborer at a brick kiln, uh, and he eventually paid for the admission for Sharoon to enroll in a school in Pakistan's Punjab province. 
Because he was the only Christian in his grade, he was isolated from the very first day. He endured uh, tireless taunting, even torture on the part of his classmates. They tried to convert Sharum to Islam, but it didn't. He resisted. And one Muslim student shouted at him, you're a Christian, don't dare sit with us if you want to live. They began to beat him. They were shouting insults at him. And no teacher or administrator came to his aid, and he died immediately. Now, the end of the story goes on, and um, the teacher uh, who was there and let it happen ended up being arrested for murder. Um, but many of the students, uh, they didn't feel remorse. They didn't end up sharing who else was involved. And so the, it, there's almost a sense of there really is no justice for what happened. Um, the victim's mother, Riaz Bibi, said that her son was warned by peers not to mix with the Muslims at school. She said her son was called a chura, which was a derogatory term which refers to people belonging to the lowest caste, uh, according to the hierarchy in these South Asian societies. And this was the quote she had. I want to leave you with this. My son was a kind-hearted, hard-working, and affable boy. He has always been loved by his teachers and pupils alike and shared great sorrow that he was being targeted by students at his new faith, at his new school because of his faith. Sharun and I cried every night as he described the daily torture he was subjected to. The evil boys that hated my child are now refusing to reveal who else was involved in the murder. Nevertheless, one day, God will have his judgment. What we do know now is that Sharun is wearing a white robe. He's with Jesus. People have died for Christ, and we cannot forget them. We cannot stop telling his story and other stories who have given their life for their faith. It's so important that we remember these people and remember their legacy. And people will continue to die for Christ. This is something that happens, and part of one of the main themes that we're going to see come up over and over again throughout this book. So maybe, again, going back to where we were, maybe this is all referring to the future. And, and it, I would make the case that actually this symbolizes everyone who has died for their faith. And this next part is fascinating to me. If you guys have your Bibles, or I'll have it on the screen, we're going to turn to Matthew 24, 29 through 30. And this is where I think the case um, to be made that we are part of the millennium is really hard to argue against. Because we have Jesus saying that there is coming a great tribulation. Start in verse 29. Jesus says, immediately, notice, or immediately after, notice the after, not during. So he says, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's important again to note that Jesus says immediately after the distress of those days. That's an important clue. Because if we turn to Revelation 6.12, I want you to notice if you think of anything that's similar to what Jesus' words were. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heaven receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. I don't know if you noticed, but almost every event was the same. Slightly, slightly nuanced, but pretty much was the same. 
And in Matthew, it says, and then all the people of the earth will mourn. Well, what do we see in the next passage in verse 15? It says, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. They called out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? In Matthew, it's described as the people will mourn. And here you have people, every kind of person, hiding in caves, begging the mountains to crush them. That sounds like mourning to me. I can't read these side by side. I know there's a lot of allusions to Isaiah and other things, but it's really hard for me to read those two things side by side um, and be like, they're talking about the second coming of Jesus, which is not compatible with a future view because the future view would suggest that these are cataclysmic events that are going to happen literally in the final seven years. But that's not what this looks like to me. Now, we're really getting to the thick of it here. Um, How you read these books does matter with how you interpret it. And so as we continue to relive these cycles, um, and if you read this from a futuristic perspective, that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But others would say that clearly this is representing the second coming of Christ. The question we have to wrestle with is, is John describing something that is physically literal Or could he be using natural calamities to symbolically portray the turmoil of earthly nations and the judgment that is going to fall in this world when Christ returns? And I think the way we answer the question, are we living in the end times, it's not uh, something that you can read in the Wall Street Journal. It's not going to help by turning to your favorite uh, cable news or, or reading Twitter. I think the only way to answer this question is to realize that John lived in the first century not the 21st century. And so we have to get that part first. He was a Jewish Christian, not a Gentile. He was immersed in the Old Testament, not in Fox News, CNN, or Huffington Post, right? John's language, his terminology, his worldview was shaped by a biblical perspective um, of what we know as the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus. And therefore, I think we really need to be careful about how we read these words. Andrew Perriman uh, writes this, and I think it's very, very wise. He says, to read forwards from the first century rather than backwards from the 21st century, um, one of the reasons why the apocalyptic language of the New Testament can be so puzzling to the modern interpreter is that we cannot help but read it retrospectively and with the advantage, which more often than not turns out to be a disadvantage of hindsight. This is a tremendous challenge for Christians. Um, we, we, get accustomed, we don't get accustomed to thinking in biblical terms when we read the Bible. And it's problematic to read the Bible on its own terms uh, to insist that these words refer to the physical collapse of all of the world. Um, N.T. Wright said, this is simply the way regular Jewish imagery is able to refer to a major sociopolitical events that bring out their full significance. In other words, what I'm saying is that Revelation 6, 12 through 14 is Old Testament prophetic language for natural disaster. It's a simple way to put it. And it's something that will be experienced throughout the history of time. And so John, therefore, isn't, he's not referring to bizarre astronomical or geological events that will occur, but instead he's predicting the judgment of God that will soon fall decisively on the entire earth and those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel. So here's my point, or rather John's point here. 
when Jesus returns, he will judge every political organization that opposes him. He will bring devastation to every government, every army, every nation, every philosophical movement, every financial institution that refuses to submit to his lordship. That's what John is describing here. And my point is that these heavenly and earthly events, they're kind of like prophetic hyperbole for, for like a natural uh, or national or global catastrophe. Okay, it's, it's a way to sort of describe these, these events that will happen in time. Okay, I'm going to land this plane. You guys have been amazing. Staying with me. The second coming of Jesus Christ, it's both... Uh, simultaneously an outpouring that we see of, of God's divine wrath. That's what we've seen described in this chapter. But it's also uh, his saving mercy. Now, these two things are seemingly a paradox. How can God have divine justice and divine mercy? How do these things work together? What's hard for us is, the mer- is not the mercy, God's mercy. That's palatable. We like to share that, God's love. I think the wrath part is what's difficult for us to wrestle with. And I want to explain um, sort of what wrath is. It's not an irre- like an outburst of anger. It's not flippant. It's not the loss of self-control. Um, it's not a bad temper or God lashing out at people who rub him the wrong way. It's, it's as described in our passage when we talk about God's wrath, what we're talking about is righteous justice towards all that is unholy. In a very real sense, it's divine wrath being a function of divine love. What do I mean by that? A great quote from J.I. Packer. He says, Would a God who took so much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it's precisely this adverse reaction to evil, which is a necessary part of moral perfection, that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. Therefore, it is exactly because God is a God of divine mercy and justice that we can weep um, for the deaths of those like Sharun Masi. We can weep for them and find comfort in knowing that his death was not in vain, that there will be justice in the end, that God does not allow evil to go unpunished. He cannot. It is a part of his character. So what I want us to do in closing is a practice. We've been trying to integrate uh, practicing our faith into this weekly service. And so one of the ways we're going to practice that night is at the table. Um, I'll go ahead and invite Joseph. He's going to lead us in time of confession in just a second. Um, But what I want us to do as our practice is take some time to pray for the persecuted church. As you're preparing your heart uh, to to receive communion tonight, um, begin to, to pray for those who are suffering, who do face persecution Um, remember the blood shed for you on the cross, but also remember the blood that has been shed in the name of Jesus. I think that when we can take a moment to really uh, allow ourselves to wrestle with, is this something that if I was in this situation, if I were to face death, how would I face it? If we can sit in that and prepare our hearts for uh, receiving the bread and the wine. I believe um, that this is a, a, just a healthy and good practice for all of us. So let me pray for us, and then Joseph will lead us in a pract- or prayer of confession. Lord Jesus, we thank you for a time to gather and study your word, even when it's a hard text, even when we talk about difficult things. Um, I pray that 
we would allow the text um, to, to read us as well to, to, to confront the things that need to be confronted. Lord, I pray that uh, we could uh, lift up in this time those who have been persecuted, those who um, are struggling. And Lord, for those in this room who are struggling themselves, who are dealing with difficult things, Lord, I, I pray that you would meet them in this moment, that your presence is in the room, that your presence is near to them, and that through the bread and the wine and the sacrament, Lord, that you would, you would meet them in their deepest needs. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, and that you're a God who is just. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.